I'm a foodie and I enjoy learning about the process that brings great foods and beverages from idea to the table. And then I like tasting them and learning the nuances of what creates the most significant tastes from coffee to cheese to distilled beverages. I did a tequila tasting in Mexico and recently bourbon, Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon really impressed me from the story to the taste. I grew up in Kentucky where horse racing and bourbon are famous and I got introduced to Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon. It's produced by Heaven Hill Distillery, which has been and still remains family owned since 1935. And I'm impressed with the bourbon's ultra rich, smooth taste. And right on the bottle, it states that this bourbon is seven years old, which is actually three times longer than what's required to be certified as bottled in bond. I feel with beverages, the longer the prep, the better the taste. Being a bottled in bond product means it must pass a list of seven requirements that set the standard for this quality bourbon. So look for it at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely and drink wisely. What Drives You is brought to you by Ziggler, your premier source for equipping life and leadership coaches. Visit Ziggler.com and let them inspire your true coaching performance. Yeah. Welcome to What Drives You. I'm your host, Kevin Miller. This is the podcast for driven people who want to achieve great things and want to enjoy the ride each and every day. In this episode, we're looking at a key myth I feel that we have around drive, that it comes from focusing on external things. You are driven to, we generally think of make money or secure a certain relationship or attain a position or have an experience. It's always out there. And yet all these things are simply items that we focus on to get into ourselves, our inner selves, our driven selves. So my book is about unlocking the drive inside you. And though I do look at external motives as, as tools, the work happens inside. So we're kicking off a series here on inner mastery. And my expert is Hitendra Wadwa. Uh, he is the professor at Columbia Business School and founder of the Mentora Institute, which he'll tell us about a little bit at the end of the show. His class on personal leadership and success is one of the most popular at Columbia Business School. Hitendra's mission is to discover, codify, and teach the laws of success in life and leadership. And his research integrates the latest science of human nature, ancient wisdom, studies of great leaders, and the personal journeys of everyday heroes, which I really appreciate. And Hitendra, I want to dig in on that in just a minute. But his new book or, or his book is titled Inner Mastery, Outer Impact, How Your Five Core Energies Hold the Key to Success. And we are going to zero in on each of those five core energies. Uh, it's endorsed, I noticed, by Arthur Brooks, who uh, my listeners, we just had on the show for the second time, as well as Angela Duckworth, the author of Grit and eight-time Olympian Apollo Ono, which is a lot of fun. Uh, Hitendra, I'm just excited to be here with you and excited for this message. Thank you for being with us. Oh, my joy. Thank you, Kevin. That was a very stirring introduction, and I'm, I'm grateful to be here with you and looking forward to our conversation. Well, it feels, as so many of my discussions, it feels somewhat um, sometimes divine on the topics that we hit. It feels like, oh my goodness, this is just right here, right now for me because I, I really, I really needed it. And I, I really wanted to kick off you talk, I think it's right in the intro of your book. You said, you know, you achieved one of those external successes or multiples, an MBA, a PhD. You found fortune in essence in Silicon Valley. And then, and this is what you wrote in the book, 
I had a gnawing feeling that my life might hurtle toward its final act without me ever having come close to living it. That right there should resonate with most everyone listening that we have this feeling that we're going after things that we we really feel that we want, but are we going to come to the end and really miss it? It feels like that's that's the human condition, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, it's good when you are enough in touch with your deepest stirrings and the inklings that come, you know, from time to time if you know, you can actually realize that, wow, you know, even though I have been having a smooth life and or um, hitting one milestone after another, that there is something much deeper, you know, that I'm, you know, really hungering for, which which if I extrapolate, you know, from where I am and all these goals that I'm setting for myself on the outside, yeah, I might end up being in the C-suite. I might end up, you know, being this mega or whatever it is, um, but but there is there's still going to be a certain yearning and a certain hunger that that path is not going to fully satiate in me. And so, yeah, you know, what do I need to do? Can I pull back and re-examine and add more dimensions to my life and make certain bold and courageous steps or et cetera? Because otherwise, you know, I used to be in my 20s and now in my 30s and tomorrow I'm in my 40s. And like before you know it, you know, the decades of life just fly by. I, what Something that bothers me, and, and I'll ask you to speak to it, is that it feels like we have just allowed it to become the norm and the expectation that, okay, you start off life, you know, you get out of school, you go forward and you, you, you start working, you provide for yourself, you have a family and we're doing, we're doing all these external things. We need a house. We need a car. We want to do some great things. We do that. And then later on in life, we'll get interested in and have time for these deeper issues, almost like it's a luxury. And yet, what I find is people seldom get to that. They don't find the time for that, or they now have, maybe they don't have the health to even pursue that. And the few people who do happen to pursue it early on in life get accolades as the, either the enlightened or the fools, either way. But it feels like it's a luxury. It's a luxury to take time and really pursue the inner life. Cause right now we got to go out and do things. And yet it feels like we're doing things. And, and, and of course, a big question, we just did, a, as I mentioned, Arthur Brooks, who endorsed your book, was on the show talking about happiness. And we look back and most of us on a daily basis are, are kind of questioning, are, are we happy? And we don't seem to be as a culture. And that's why I feel like here you are saying, no, it, it, the, the, we can have everything we want today, in essence, with this inner mastery. But how do we take it from being having this feeling of, well, we got to take care of the daily needs. That's a luxury. And you're saying, no, it's a necessity, but we don't seem to be able to flip that switch. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that um, one device that I found to be very helpful is to not take life for granted, right? And all we've got to do is, you know, turn to the left or the right, and there is a loved one that we may have lost. There is um, a friend who passed away prematurely. There is a sudden cataclysm in a certain part of the world. And suddenly, you know, so many people just um, saw their life completely get upended, right? And so when we can actually awaken ourselves from the illusion of immortality to actually take each day as a gift that is not an entitlement, then perhaps we can open ourselves up to the fragility and frailty of the physical life, the 
um, in, um, you know, just uncertainty about sort of, you know, what or where, you know, we will be dealt, you know, certain cards in life. And then suddenly we start becoming, rather than morbid and depressed by that, you know, we become kind of energized and committed and attentive to the gift of life. And we realize that every moment, you know, is meant to be maximized in some ways in us tapping into our fullest capacities, us engaging in an exploration, us really pursuing some of the harder questions in life because we've got a limited time on earth in which to investigate those, us putting our most creative, you know, self in, in service of, you know, the, whatever it is, you know, the advancement of humanity or our families, et cetera, that we are drawn to because again, this day will never come back to us that is dawning today. And um, we, we just don't know how many more of these days we have left in life. And when that flame is finally getting set to be extinguished in that moment where, you know, the, the, the curtains are kind of like being drawn, you know, on the stage of life and we have played our part and we're departing. And yes, of course, we want everybody's applause and we want people to feel like, oh, wow, you know, Hitendra played his role so well. Fundamentally, you know, even the audience at some point fades away and you're just kind of like left with your own self, with your conscience, your inner voice, just you and yourself and the universe. And in that moment, you know, wouldn't it want to be the case that we walk away with our head held high, walk away feeling like, wow, this life was a hero's journey. And, you know, I couldn't completely control the cards I got, but I maximized my potential. I went out and investigated. I engaged in the adventure of life. And, you know, I feel really good about what it is that I was able to do in the confines of the time we have, right? And so if we keep that vision in mind, that aspiration in mind, that real realization in mind that that is inevitable, that moment is inevitable for you and for me and for all of us, that's what we're hurtling towards. That's what we're hurtling towards. Then why not seek to paint this canvas of life, right, in the most beautiful hues and create something which at the end of the day, when you look back, you feel like, wow, between the divine artist and me, like we were, we were able to make something beautiful happen together. You, thank you. You mentioned the, did you say the luxury or the myth of immortality? How did you phrase that? The myth, you know, the myth. Yeah. So like, yeah, like that, that, you know, I'm going to be alive tomorrow. I'm going to be alive day after. Yeah. That, well, as you know, we re we rescheduled our initial talk. And as I, as I shared with you, it's because of my uh, father, he got a cancer diagnosis and in six weeks he was gone. So it was one of those terrible or seemingly terrible stories. And it was obviously, you know, my, my dad is, is gone and we miss him. And my mom is, uh, you know, without her, her love. Uh, and she's, she, they're both in their mid seventies and in good health. So she's got a, a long ways, but it brought to light, uh, Hitendra, it brought to light these issues and, I have been helped to not have the myth of immortality. As I look at my dad who figured he had another 20 plus years of, of not just of living, but of productivity. He had books he was planning to wow. do. He yeah. had things that he was uh, intending to, to produce and, and achieve and experience. And yet when it came down to the wire and he knew that it's over as far as his mortal life is over, he was at peace. Hmm. He said, I don't have, uh, I don't have things that I wish I had still done. I did them. I don't have things that I wish I had imparted. That was the big one. He said, I, I've imparted them. I've, I've been spending mm. my life. And as his kid, so I, I'm one of three. And as we were surrounding his bed for weeks at the end, and we did not want or need, uh, and he doesn't really even have to give, 
riches. We didn't, there's not a big bank account. There's not a bunch of material possessions. What he does have is just going to go to support my mom for the rest of her life. And yet I, I don't, I didn't want anything. I didn't want anything that he would have gone and pursued. I didn't want what I, what I want, wanted, I got. And that was his investment in me and his investment in others. And I got to hear testimonies. My dad was a a well-known author and leader. And I got to hear testimonies from literally hundreds of people. There's no greater gift or heritage or legacy that I could have gotten. Okay. Well, now I'm back home. I've got a big family. I still got small, I got kids up to 28 and down to 11 still. And I'm looking at it and go, what am I doing? What am I doing? First off, just to what you said, I don't have the myth of mortality. I could get the cancer diagnosis or a car wreck today. So, uh, you know, yes, I want to take care of my family, but I got a life insurance policy or three, you know, they'll take care, they'll, they'll take care of the finances. What do I want to leave them? So now to you with inner mastery, I want to help them with that. And as you lead us to in your book, I can't help with their inner selves unless I've dealt with myself or, or I should say, that's probably not fair because it's not like I'm going to finish and finalize myself, but along with my pursuit is how I can help them. It feels like, is there a bigger priority? Fair? Yeah. I mean, first of all, thank you for sharing that um, journey that you all took as a family and that got you know your father to ultimately reach that final point in his life. And I'm, I'm you know, I'm sorry about what this must have meant and coming as a sudden diagnosis and all the way to having him pass on, you know, but um, it's also very inspiring, you know, to hear the way you've described it. Um, You know, I feel like one of the things that we don't do very well as society is um, to really honor, you know, honor the final chapter and to accept with grace, you know, that everything has a moment when it, you know, is a chapter that needs to be closed and, you know, and people do pass on and, if we can approach it, you know, from that place of clarity, attunement, being at peace and um, celebrating, you know, the, the journey of life and the gifts it has brought us and what we've been able to do with it, uh, which is what it seems like your father did. It's actually really uplifting and inspiring to hear that. And I wish there was more of that kind of training and teaching we all receive, you know, in schools yeah, and yeah. families and in the medical establishment and beyond that it's not just a mad rush towards like trying to keep life sustained at any cost, you know, and all of that, but also honoring the cycles of nature, you know, and the birth sustenance and ultimate passing, right? So, so thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, in, in, in what you're proposing and saying and that beautiful quest you have for your family, um, you know, I mean, like for me, the, the simplest way for us to explore that is to not approach it from a place of preaching, right? And you've yourself said how the first step is for you to be invested in it in, in your own pursuit, in your, in your own case. And you have the humility to recognize that, you know, just because you're a dad and you've got all these impressionable young hearts and minds, that doesn't mean you've arrived. That doesn't mean you made it. You know, you're still yeah. a work in progress pursuing, pursuing your own. Um, to that end, I mean, there are a couple of practices I found, you know, kind of helpful in, in parenting, you know, and, and you know, you're, you're much more the expert uh, in, in, in the, in the, in the size and the beauty of the family you're raising. In my case, we have one daughter and, and, you know, she's been, yeah, she's been just a beautiful handful for us. But, um, but in that regard, I mean, you know, I wonder what you think about these two ideas, right? So one is that rather than feel, you know, or make them feel like you're trying to help them fix something from the outside, retrofit something that is kind of missing in them. Um, if we can make them actually 
see it, see growth, see personal advancement as really a quest to awaken to the soul qualities that already exist at the very core of the being. And that every now and then we are there to affirm and remind them of that, you know, the sweetness of spirit, that indomitability of spirit that they have shown here and there and there. <clears throat> and they may not be showing here and there and there. And so we can we can kind of remind them and and gradually anchor them. And again, this is not like your mama or your papa telling you, look how how much wiser and smarter and stronger I am than you. It's about us just reminding them that look, I mean, there is that beautiful part of you, and isn't that the true part of you? And you know, isn't that isn't that really what you know is the most rewarding thing for you to experience and connect with and express? And and what can we do to be of service and support you to help you get there? Anyway, so so that's that's one part, you know. And and then the other is, um, you know, as another discipline in parenting, I mean, to to set like a really high bar and a standard, right, for how we want to kind of like show up and how we want to interact and how we want to you know, kind of tame and master our, our, our emotions from time to time and really create an environment where conflict can be kind of handled with grace and, you know, and all of that, right? So so we want to do all of that, but we stumble from time to time. Sometimes we stumble with our, our life partner, our spouse, our, you know, our, you know their, their, their father or their mother, you know, that we are interacting with and sometimes with, you know, with them too and, and sometimes with others within the world. And I, what I found very liberating in those moments is that as opposed to feeling really bad about it, or defensive about it, or ignoring it, or saying like, what the hell, you know, I mean, we can have our meltdown moments, and generally speaking, I'm a really good dad, or a mom, whatever. If we can use those as moments for reflection, and recalibration, and even for acknowledging and apologizing, you know, and, and, and saying that, look, I, I think I failed, you know, the standard I, I really want to have, um, you know, for myself, and, um, and, and I know I'm capable of more, and in this moment, I, you know, I'm sorry, you know, I'm sorry about what happened. Um, I think that over time, it creates a greater trust between you know the child and the parent because the child gets to see the parent is um you know is aspiring for something you know has the standard and when they slip you know they're not um trying to impose their power or you know you know defensiveness but they're being honest about the fact that it's a journey and I'm you know I'm as much a, you know a a pilgrim on that journey as you are right as a child so it's interesting you say that my kids are inspired by my pursuit of inner mastery of growth. They're proud that I have, uh, they look at it as a maturity of me to, to have a therapist, not as a, Oh, I'm so broken. I need a therapist. And I'm so grateful. And that's been a long time in coming. You, you mentioned, you know, again, this, this inside, not the outside, but the inside and you use an analogy in your book of the sun of saying, you know, the core is whatever, 1% or it's the smallest part. And yet it produces 99% of the energy of the sun, that that's us, that it's inside. And you reading your book, studying the book, it just reminded me again, how this pursuit, even of finding ourselves inside that we, we, we take this external approach of, I'm going to go on a journey to, uh, you know, experience something, even if it's a journey to, to this place or that place and, and not to discount that sometimes going and having an experience is beautiful in awakening what's inside. But as you showcase us, it is something inside. It's what I talk about with drive that it's not that some people are born with more drive than others. We all have it inside. We've just got to find it and understanding. And that's what I found in your book is it's this pursuit of understanding. We may need help. We may need help from a therapist or we may be helped by an experience, but ultimately it's just this effort to, I feel like digging inside and opening up what's already there. And it sounds pithy to say, and yet 
it just is. When we have that, if we took that experience that you went to the Holy Lands and had this wonderful experience that opened, some, opened something up, you didn't find it in a cave. You found it inside. And I wish we could extrapolate that better to understand, oh, the journey is just to awaken. Now, again, we may need those external things, but it is inside. And we probably won't speak to that, Tindra, that, I mean, we're not going to find it in a vacuum. We're not going to go lock ourselves in a cave with no resources and probably uncover what's inside. We do need help, but that understanding of that it is inside, it's not something we're going to find out here and implant in us. True. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, you know, I subscribe to the belief that uh, within each of us is a very special place. You know, I call it, like you said, you're in a core. Uh, I use the analogy, like you said, of the sun, which, um, you know, geologists have discovered all the energy that we, that you and I operate with and live with, of course, comes from the sun. And the sun has this massive ball that is generating so much energy. It just turns out that 99% um, of that energy is being generated from the very center of the sun called the sun's core. And that sun's core is responsible just for 1%, 1% of the sun's volume. So that 1% is generating 99%. And, you know, I use that to kind of just like invite us to consider like, you know, what if, what if like you and I feel like, you know what, I, 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 I you know, I, I live a generally a good life. I'm, I'm reflective enough. Maybe there are deeper places within me, but who cares? You know, I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, you know, I'm kind of like tapping into most of what I am. Yeah. But what if most of who you are is that 1% that's at the very center of your being? And unless you take on certain contemplative practices or create a little bit of space, you know, for yourself to, you know, do those deeper divings, you know, who knows what you and I will uncover as we get closer and closer and closer to that very core of our being. And who knows what untapped potentialities there might be there for us to be loving and kind and joyful and strong and resilient and creative and whatever it is that we, we want to do and manifest in, in the world. And of course, the ultimate arena, you know, for us to manifest that is in our families, is in our communities, in, is in our professions, is in the world at large, in whatever change making or the form we want to, you know, we want to help advance the world in. But, but, you know, if you're not tapping into that very core of your being, you know, maybe you're not doing full justice to your families and to your communities and to your profession because you're just bringing a certain, you know, outer kind of little, you know, kind of version of yourself. And then there's just this much deeper, much deeper part of who you are. I'll give you an example, right? I mean, yeah. so we were talking about like these everyday kind of just sparks and heroes and things, right? And so, so there's John Denver, right? Much loved, you know, as a yeah. country musician, you know, painfully so had a premature early passing with the plane accident, right? Um, but, you know, he had beautiful music that he composed, yeah. right, over the years. And one of, you know, his songs that is my favorite, and I think for many who have been John Denver fans is Annie's song. Right. Mm -hmm. Annie's song, which is you, you fill up my senses like a sleepy blue ocean. And it's just a very, very scenic and very beautiful conversation that he's having with the universe, but also in a sense with his partner. Right. And uh, this was his wife and he was struggling in his relationship with her. And, um, you know, at this time that uh, the song, you know, was composed by him. And and what did it take for him to compose the song? What did it take for him to compose? Basically, one of his winningest, most popular songs. Now, you might think that, you know, generally speaking, it's hard work and it's lots of toil and probably lots of like, you know, piece of paper where he wrote lyrics and thought of it and then kind of scrapped it and scrapped it and scrapped it. And then it took years. Well, he was skiing and he was going up a ski lift to get to the top of the you know mountain. And that's when the whole song came to him. The whole song just came to him right there. 
effortlessly, effortlessly, right? Now, in the meanwhile, he's plumbing the depths of his soul, right? He's feeling deep feelings, deep feelings, because he, he's struggling in that relationship with somebody he dearly, dearly loves. So he's, he's a musician, he's sensitive, you know, he's, he's going to the you know, depths of his soul. And somehow, everything that he's done in life has just prepared him in that moment to just receive, to just receive, to be a channel, right? To be a channel from where this beautiful piece of music that has brought so much heartfelt joy and communion to so many, you know, just, 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 just arrives and just comes to him. And, and I mean, imagine if what that represents is the peak potential capacity in you and me and in all of us, yeah. that if we were really, really in tune with our soul, if we face that kind of just depth of purity of intention and feeling, wanting to create and bring something out, you know, from whatever, you know, vocation and pursuit that we have in life. Some, some of us are athletes, some of us are musicians, some of us are inventors and discoverers and what have you. But if you could activate that state and stay in that state and, and intentionally kind of get there like a few times a day, imagine the kind of genius we would unleash cumulatively over the course of a life, right? And, and so, um, that's the core. You know, he was in touch in that moment with the core. You have it, I have it, we all have it, right? And, and, and yes, it makes sense to, you know, kind of, learn STEM and, you know, go to college and, you know, kind of master the outer craft or whatever it is that we want to do. But unless we have gotten to that point of activating and connecting with the core, we just don't know how much more there could have been in terms of our insight, our intuition, our wisdom, our creativity, our joy. Most of today, you will be indoors, likely your home or your office. I am as well. Even with my treks out into the woods, I spend a lot of time inside. And we're going to think about 20,000 breaths. According to the EPA, the indoor air is two to five times more polluted than the outdoor air, sometimes up to 100 times more polluted. At my studio, we have heat being forced through old ducts. I walk on carpet full of years of junk. No idea what's floating in the air that I'm taking constant gulps of. The solution is an air purifier and air doctor is just the best. Air doctor filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants and allergens such as pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold, bacteria, viruses. They do it so it, your lungs don't have to. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Go to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code KEVIN, and depending on the model, you'll receive up to 39% off or up to 300 bucks off. Exclusive to podcast customers, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. So to get this special offer, go to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com Use promo code Kevin, airdoctorpro.com, promo code Kevin. Thankfully, the days of building a business website, then having this massive endeavor to integrate an online store are gone. Today, Shopify has fixed all that. I had one business where we actually built the entire website on Shopify's platform. So whether you're just starting out or you're selling a million bucks of product already, Shopify is just the industry leader. It works the same for physical products or online and digital, and Shopify is just hands down the best out there. Most importantly, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. It's 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Getting people to buy is not that hard, at least to the buying point, 
but getting them to actually give their payment info is. And Shopify is king in that department. They also have top tier customer service, which I think is critical. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Kevin. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Kevin to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Kevin. In terms of our insight, our intuition, our wisdom, our creativity, our joy. You bring, it's great. You bring to mind a couple thoughts, even that. I love that. Well, John Denver, I live in Colorado. I'm up in the mountains right now. I mean, he's, he's like a, a, a national treasure, obviously a state treasure yeah. here. And to look at that and yeah, you, you depict some of what I'm experiencing after all this time of, well, not all this time, cause I haven't always been doing this, but in the years now of this inner pursuit, I feel like it's not always just this gradual progression of understanding that I'll go along and go along and go, and there can be some dry seasons and all of a sudden, boom, it kind of reminds me of the bamboo tree. You know, you fertilize it or water it for whatever they say, five years. And all of a sudden in one year, boom, you know, 80 feet or whatever. It's just this incredible thing. And I've been amazed by that. And yet you kind of expect this gradual thing to happen. And yet like John Denver, if you're pursuing and cultivating this, then you have that opportunity and boom. And, you know, you talked a moment ago about tapping into this area. Otherwise the world's not getting my best. And I think, again, think of my family. And I've thought of that for years that if all I'm doing, I gosh, and I want to say this with sensitivity because it is hard work. I have a big family and to pay the bills and pay the mortgage and put clothes on backs and feed and give experiences takes a lot of work. I don't want to minimize that yet. If that's all I'm doing, well, this is what hit me, Tendra. It hit me, uh, I don't know, 10 years ago, maybe maybe less than that, that if that's all I'm doing, my life insurance policy can do that as well. Uh, it can do that pretty well. Uh, maybe better than I can. You know, It can pay the bills. It could pay off the house. It could do that. What can't it do? It, it can't be daddy. It can't invest in them. It can't raise their lives. It can't help them understand their inner journey. Okay. To that, I want to bring something out of your book because it was so significant. So if you'll bear with me while I read out of your book, uh, you talked about, this is what you, which you're, you're at Columbia business school. And you said, this is quote, and folks, I want you to hear this. We were teaching how to grow a startup, a product, an investment or a new business, but we were not teaching how to grow your own self to your full potential. We were teaching how to direct others, change others, motivate others, influence others, and inspire others. But we were not teaching how to direct yourself, change yourself, motivate yourself, influence yourself, and inspire yourself. We were teaching how to lead everyone else, but not how to lead yourself. Hey, Tendra, that, that was, I'm going to give myself grace. And I keep using, because it's high in my mind right now with my own experience with my father, my role as a father. I have spent a lot of my years as a, as a father with a good heart and I hope, you know, giving my kids, kids good things, but there's been a lot of focus on how they interact with other people, social skills, how to win friends and influence people, great stuff that has benefited them a lot. It has not been as rich in how to understand themselves and their own emotions. And as you said, leading themselves, it's not, I'm getting the opportunity to do that now. So what a gift that I get to do that now, but I, I just didn't know what I didn't know. And you're right. So what you say that here's one of the you know grandest business schools in all the earth. And yet, you know, at the end of the day, what's ultimately going to give people the most success is their inner mastery. And yet we're not teaching it. And I want people to hear that because nobody's teaching it. I mean, 
we're go get go get Hatender's book. That's the point. That's that's your opportunity is is to engage in this because you're not hearing it. So most people are pretty bereft here, right? They've not had any exposure to this kind of education. And even from that, it, I think, I wonder if that's again, why we tend to not give it priority because it's not held up high enough. Do you think? Yeah. I mean, see, <clears throat> I grew up in India and um, I moved to the United States after, after college. And um, it's been, it's been a beautiful um, period, you know, in my life, in my adult life to have embraced just so much of the genius of, of America, of the, of the West. And at the same time, <clears throat> you know, sometimes I like to think about it is that the culture I grew up in um, was very beautiful on the inside, is yeah. very beautiful on the inside. Yeah. And it's a little bit of a mess on the outside. And then I come to America and it's a culture razzle dazzle. You know, it's a very beautiful culture on the outside, but it's a little bit of a mess on the inside. And um, that's interesting. I just, I just want to put that's that's really brilliant. That's I have not thought about that. Thank you. Because the more and more as I'm pursuing this inner work, honestly, it's under a, a, a great. I should make a list. A lot of the people that I am following are from India. I mean, it's just it's it's true. You're you're one of I don't know how many we've had on the show who may live in the states now. Some do, some don't, but they. They got their birthing ground for the inner mastery there, even though, yeah, we may look at it culturally and say, ah, some of the things, you know, aren't working externally, but internally, that's who I'm following. So keep going. That's, I hadn't thought about that. That's brutal. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I really want to invite, see, we're living in a very blessed time right now where people are just becoming a lot more interested in plurality of ideas and thoughts and of celebrating, you know, diversity of cultures. Right. And so I can be very open about this. Right. And so. Yeah, it's true. When you look at it in terms of outer parameters, I mean, you know, who has a greater GDP and, you know, yeah. earning power and, you know, who drives, you know, more cooler cars, you know, one can look at America and say like, wow, we, we, we are the Mecca of civilization. And yet, you know, we know that there's struggle going on when you think about all these deaths of despair, you know, like suicides yes. and drug, drug related sort of, um, premature, you know, graves, you know, for people and all of that. We know we're hurting as a society from the inside. Now, India is a culture that, um, you know, at times, I mean, people have been, you know, in that culture, just like invited and taught to, you know, to be focused on qualities like love and, you know, joy and peace and contentment and satisfaction and a sense of collective service, you know, to the world and an attunement to a higher power and, you know, a sense of gratitude and a sense of sort of faith, you know, in, in the unfoldment of, you know, life in ways that are ultimately going to be very fair to you because it's a school in which you're meant to kind of learn lessons and advance and grow your consciousness, right? Yeah. Now, now what has happened is like that along the way, I think India lost its way, you know, over, over the centuries and, you know, stopped paying as much attention to the outer organization of life. And that is where the West, you know, since the Renaissance and Enlightenment has taken off in beautiful ways, right? And and I love it, right? The organization, the structure, the discipline, the entrepreneurship and innovation, the just like undying passion to want to understand life and nature and in some ways conquer it, right? Like to like, you know, build the biggest bridge that you can and fly the highest kind of, you know, levels in the skies that you can and send rockets out there to outer space, right? But what India is specialized in is like sending rockets to inner space, right? And to um, not just to 
be trying to kind of dominate and conquer nature, but to worship nature, right? And so in India, every river, every you know sea, every mountain is named after some aspect of the divine. Because the idea is like, basically every time I see something imposing and beautiful like that, is just an excuse for me to activate the mystic in me to go into a state of higher consciousness to use that piece of nature as an activator of like me getting in touch with my soul, me getting in touch with this universal painter out there who's painting these beautiful things in the horizon that I see in front of me. Um, and so, so now what if we could combine these two worlds? What if like our outer pursuits were continuing to be things we were deeply committed to, logically organized, passionate about the pursuit of excellence in every which way, right? Whether it's an athletics or music or, you know, startup life or whatever. But what if they were informed and guided by a quest for inner beauty, inner meaning, inner purpose as well? Then is it possible that we create a world where the decisions we make on the outside are going to be informed by a much more holistic sense of who we are as humanity and what we are seeking to achieve and do and progress and advance. And we don't end up in some of the kind of dark places that capitalism right now is really struggling with, you know, facing up to the realization that, you know, in our kind of, you know, just naked, you know, pursuit of, you know, the material life that we are getting to a point of overconsumption, we are getting to a point of disproportionate allocation of resources, you know, all kinds of income inequality and, you know, all of that, right? And, and maybe the answer to that is not just to impose some policy from the outside, you know, kind of impose some kind of view of equity from the outside, but to really activate this pursuit of beauty from the inside. And when we do, naturally so, families will start making the right decisions, communities will make starting making the right decisions, professions will start making the right decisions and law will get reformed and medicine will get reformed and the arts will be just a platform for the expression of the beauty of the human spirit as opposed to a, you know, kind of a commiseration with like the most despairing, negative kind of things that are going on in the world, right? Like maybe collectively society just will start to heal and evolve and come to a really good place. Outer beauty as an expression of inner beauty. I'm just enamored with that. It's so interesting. You even mentioned, you know, the mountains in India named after uh, the divine here. I'm, if you could look out uh, the window that way is Pike's Peak. And of course it's named after the guy who supposedly conquered it. You know, it doesn't have a divine aspect to it. It's after who conquered it. And, you know, Colorado owns it, I guess, in essence. And it's so interesting. And I don't, well, I'm not here to, I mean, you chose to live here in the U.S. There are some beautiful things about America. I believe that. And I choose to live here. And yet, yet internally, we're a mess. Like you, you mentioned the diseases of despair. They're increasing. We are the saddest, sickest, fattest we've ever been. Uh, today when we have every reason to be otherwise. And yet, yeah, we've got uh, abundance. We can have anything we want, anytime. It's clean. There's law and order for the most part. And I've spent enough time traveling that I do appreciate those things. And yet what it belies, and I'm thinking of, you know, you said, yeah, that we send rockets to outer space, that even from the aspect, here's what I'll ask, from the aspect of ourselves that we tend to have the concept of this is me. This is who I am. Kind of claiming that in India or from, and from that perspective, is it more about not saying who I am, but this is who I am becoming. This is, well, is that fair? Not who I am, but who I am becoming. And there's an expectation of you are on a constant journey to become as opposed to achieve some status to claim who I am. 
Yeah, I mean, the the key distinction I would make there is that, you know, there's one way to think about who you are, which is in very physical terms, very material terms, right? Okay. Based on your bank account, the role that you play in um, in your organization, you know, your height, your color and gender and all of that stuff. You know, that's that's one way to define who you are. And that tends to be the the Western way, the American way, that we are focused on what we can process through our five senses. And that seems to, you know, be kind of the, you know, starting and ending of reality for us. You know, that's the reality. And then and then there's another way, right? And And that's activating the sixth sense. That's activating the human spirit within, right? And seeing your body as the temple, you know, in which that spirit is housed for a while. And the purpose of that body being to help you engage materially with, you know, with creation, with the world, so that you can just, you know, play a really beautiful game and come to a place where you feel really proud about the relationships, the warmth, the connection, the impact, the creativity, you know, whatever it is that you are meant to manifest in this life. The body is a temple, a vehicle, you know, a, a expression, a embodiment, you know, the material kind of, you know, format through which your spirit is being expressed because spirit by itself being immaterial, being beyond the material, being ineffable, you know, needs, needs a vehicle, needs a platform. And that's your body, right? And so if you look at it that way, then your essence, you know, your identity, who you are at your core is a daily process of discovery and uncovering an unfoldment of your relationship with your spirit, right? Can you intuit your spirit? Can you connect with your spirit? Can you silence the outer din so that you can kind of listen to the purity, you know, of your voice within? Um, can, can, can you feel that? Can you experience that? Can you, can you recognize that it's already whole? You know, you don't need somebody else's love or affirmation or fame or fortune in the world for you to feel like you belong in the universe, that you have a critical role and some special spark that you're meant to manifest because that conviction, that clarity, that attunement is coming from the very core of your being. It is interesting. You said two or three times you've used the word attunement. I think our next series is with Thomas Hubel uh, in his new book, uh, Attuned. So that'll be timely for everybody to listen to. Okay. You talking about the spirit. Yeah. Um, it's so interesting to me, Hitendra, uh, that we focus on, you know, who am I? And yeah, again, that outer shell, even looking at gender and, you know, sexuality and fashion and the things that we're trying to do to communicate who we are. And it's interesting. I spoke to author Donald Miller, an author I appreciate. And he talked about an event that he went to where for the first two or three days of this retreat in essence, they were not allowed to say or share what they do. They could not talk about their work. And he said it was excruciating because he so much wanted to tell people that he was an author. He was somebody. He had done something and it was so difficult. I had this brief thought that you brought back to mind of how interesting it would be to be at a social engagement dressed in a, a mummy outfit, you know, with, with holes for eyes. And that's really about it. And even one that was, was rounded. So you couldn't even see the shape of the person. You couldn't see if they were thin or overweight or whatever, nothing. And all you had, you couldn't share your gender. Maybe they even mask your voice. So all you can do, you can give inflection, but you can just talk. And it was more about a spirit. Who are you outside of all those? I don't know that most of us could function. I'd actually, I would love to experience that. 
for a day. Maybe I'll try to set that up and, and to do that. But that's what we're out here trying to communicate. And I wonder, are we even trying to communicate it as much as we're just trying to understand it ourselves? We don't know. And in the mix is back to what you said. It's just, it's a mess. We're a mess of inner mastery, trying to do it outer and we're completely awry, which I would, I would think is, well, I'll ask you how much does that lend itself to these diseases of despair that we're experiencing? It's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, um, one of the things I was struck by as a traveler across cultures is, um, you know, is, is the point you just made about sort of how we, you know, suppress or express certain aspects of identity and, and, you know, just, uh, the way in which we dress, you know, in the West tends to emphasize our body as part of our brand. Yes. Right. And you go to certain other cultures and to the point you're making, they are, you know, dressing in typically very loose, um, you know, fully flowing kind of clothing where you can't make out of the person is, you know, fit or fat or anything like, you know, this or that or whatever. It just, just, you know, you just can't make any of that out. And, um, you know, not, not too overtly. And, um, it's interesting because, um, I think implicitly what, you know, that culture is choosing to say and do is that, you know, when I show up and I interact with you, I don't want there to be immediate judgments, you know, about like, yeah. you know, how I look physically. I want this to be a conversation which is maybe a little bit more spirit to spirit, you know, and and so so let's just kind of dress in a certain way that um, that part is not top of mind for us. Now it's it's hard, you know, and we're all human, and there's always some of that sort of processing that is going on in the brain. But um, but yeah, it's just kind of an interesting way to appreciate and empathize with at times what we sometimes see as um, very different kind of dress sense that people have in certain cultures and a different notion of fashion in other cultures that implicit in, in those fashions and, you know, um, ways and styles of and norming in dress is, um, it's kind of like an, 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 a view that unconsciously exists as to whether it is important to, yeah, just show up in a certain way in terms of my physical brand, right? My body versus to really focus on, you know, my core intentions and my being and, you know, things that go beyond the body. Right. It's so interesting. I mean, it's, I would have to admit to it, to be candid. I, I would admit to it. If I see, yeah, even looking at your culture and if there's a, you know, a, a turban and a beard and let's say that they've got sunglasses on and then they're, you know, wearing a long covering, I almost, no, I'll, I'll be honest. I kind of feel like I can't see you. Yeah. That says more about me than you. If I can't see you because I can't, I can't, under, I can't discern you physically, gosh, it reminds me of a movie that I saw. Now that I think about it, I can't come up with the name of the movie, uh, popular people in it, but it's a little bit old where it's kind of a dating scenario where they come together in the, in the 30 minutes, like they have dinner together and it's in the dark. Somehow they do it in the uh, dark. Uh -huh. Maybe they don't do food. I don't know, but they, they do it in the dark where yeah. they can hear voices. So they know boy, girl or whatnot. They can discern. Yeah. Yeah. They don't know. And they kind of develop a friendship and it's not till they walk out afterwards wow. they see each other. And of course, in the movie, they're of course, beautiful people and they're really excited about that. But how interesting to make that connection outside of the outer. I mean, that's why you're here. It's pulling me more to my own, my own admission, uh, my own awareness of how much the outer 
world in all ways is so powerful that it, I almost want to, well, maybe it brings up the gift of blindness. Yeah. Well, so, so let's talk about that. So, um, yeah. you know, I, I want to sort of like, um, you know, or, you know, kind of just like throw in a couple of more variables and thoughts in that. So there's somebody I was out in, you know, out of touch with for, for years upon years, right? I hadn't interacted with them, met them, talked to them, but they had, you know, people who I'd known for a few years back in my early 20s. And then decades later, decades later, one day I'm standing in some public square and I hear this voice behind me and instantly I recognize it to be that person, you know, and I turn back and of course it is that person and we have a joyous engagement. Now this person has aged, right, over the course of those 30 years since I last saw them um, in terms of the physical look and, and everything, but their voice the voice instantly gave them away, right? The voice, I just had to hear it in the back of my mind. And I, in, in my, you know, in the back of me, and I, I hadn't had any conversation with them for 30 years, but I instantly recognized that this is that person. So what is it about the human voice that makes it such a perfect kind of, you know, um, mirror of who you are at, at your level of your soul, right? People say that about people's eyes, right? That, you know, th those of us who can kind of see in people's eyes, sometimes we can, you know, see the depths of that person's soul, right, in, in their eyes. Um, so there is this, my favorite Frenchman, right, is this uh, gentleman called Jacques, Jacques Luceran, right? And, and he, um, you know, grew up and very early had an accident and turned blind. And then he operated for the rest of his life without, you know, the benefit of eyesight. And, um, and yet he became quite a remarkable figure. He was part of the French resistance during the Second World War, ended up in the concentration camp um, and was able to survive from that camp, ultimately migrated to the United States because uh, he saw more opportunity here at that time as, as somebody with that disability or being blind, uh, ultimately became a professor. And, and he, he would talk about how he said, sometimes teachers would come up to me and say, you know, or others like, how can you, you know, how, how can you teach? Because like, after all, these students must be taking advantage of the fact that you can't, you can't even see what they're doing in class. So they must be doing all kinds of just like misbehavior and stuff. And he said, I, I just don't understand it. He said, I don't understand it because when has teaching had to do anything to do with like vigilance and, you know, kind of, you know, monitoring from the eyes, you know, isn't it having to do with the energy? Doesn't have to do with the spirit. And, you know, there is no reason for you need to need eyes for you to sense the energy and the spirit in the room. And so that's how I operate. You know, I operate on the basis of attuning myself to the audience through the spirit, you know, that is, you know, either I'm feeling that connection or I'm not. And he became one of the most beloved teachers, you know, in his college. You know, they, they just loved him, the students, for the impact he had. Right. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I just think that all of any of us can open ourselves to these other faculties through which we are experiencing the very soul of the other person's being, you know, paying more attention to just micro small like facial expressions and or, you know, the eyes or just the just the voice, you know, you're hearing. I mean, Malcolm X, you know, Malcolm X said once, he said, you know, if I need to know a man's character, all I have to do is hear his voice. You know? That's so interesting in the eyes. You're right. It is so telltale, again, about the inner aspects of ourselves. I want to talk about to take this because what is the point in understanding ourselves so that what, and it is ultimately transformation. Is that the key? I mean, that's the key of your book and your message and what you're about is transformation. I want us to understand that better to set up a question that I have or something I want to make a point. I, I want to, uh, to zero in on, will you real quick, tell the story that you talk about in your book of the, it was the warlord that then uh, became someone of peace. I, you know what? 
I'm pulling the book off right here because it was such a powerful, you know, story of someone who it was a Ashoka. Is that yeah, what right? yeah, 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 yeah. Ashoka, 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 yeah. Ashoka. Tell that story real quick, and then so gonna- yeah, I mean, I mean, um, we we know about Alexander the Great, yeah, you know, this uh, all-conquering, you know, Greek um, king. And he came all the way up to the borders of India, ultimately made inroads in India. That's where his um, journey ultimately ended and his soldiers became tired and he had to kind of retreat back. And, um, you know, and the rest is history, you know, about Alexander. Well, a few years after Alexander left India, you know, was born this, uh, this, uh, this person who, you know, went on to become, you know, India's greatest ruler, uh, Ashoka. And uh, for a period of time in his youthful sort of, you know, indiscretions, he was very drawn to uh, Alexander-like sort of, you know, quest for conquest, you know, growing his kingdom, you know, waging war upon war. And um, yeah, you're just thinking about, you know, his, his success in life as being about, you know, how much territory he could conquer and how he could grow his terrain, which he did, you know, very successfully. And yet... In one of those battles, uh, the battle of what they call Kalinga, in that battle of Kalinga, he walks around the battlefield in the aftermath of the, you know, of the battle and he starts to really connect with and, and, and feel for the dying, you know, the, the, the widows and orphans, you know, kind of wailing at the, you know, passing on and, you know, of their soldier, husband or father. And, um, and he just starts to wake up to a new understanding of like, wow, you know, this is the impact and ramifications of my rapacious appetite for just wanting more and more. And is that what I really need to do as a king? And then he, uh, has a change of heart and the change of heart doesn't make him immediately sort of retreat, you know, from the responsibility of being a king and, and being a statesman, you know, instead it makes him reaffirm, you know, his commitment to his people, but in a different way from before. Earlier, it was that I'm meant to rule over my people. And now it became more like I am meant to serve my people. I'm meant to be the servant of my people. And earlier it was, you know, all all conquering, you know, gaining in military strength and whatever. And now it became more about how can I codify the laws of life well lived, uh, bringing in, you know, faith and other sort of like uh, sources of wisdom for myself. And how can I put this message out there for my people so that they start living happier lives, more virtuous lives, more, more complete lives. And so there are these uh, edicts that he um, carved out, you know, in stone across India that have been preserved since then. This is now I'm going back, you know, 2000 years or so. And it was incredible what ultimate lasting impact he had in India. And so he's in India called Ashoka the Great. You know, and, and, you know, and then we have Alexander the Great, you know, which, you know, was full of conquest. Now, I do want to say that Alexander too had this stirring within. He too was drawn to some of these deeper ideas. He wrote to Aristotle, you know, his teacher at that time, you know, when he was growing up with, with the, the fact that, look, you're doing loftier and bigger things. I would love to be doing that kind of work. Yet my, you know, my, my, you know, station in life is to be doing what I'm doing, you know, waging all these wars. But when he came to India, he inter- interacted with some of the yogis, you know, of that time. And he got very drawn to the simplicity of their life, the attunement they had to like divine consciousness and, and was curious and wanting, wanting a little bit more of that. But, um, you know, faith had uh, something else in store for him because it was hard for him to give up, you know, his, his, his way of life. And uh, ultimately, you know, he lost out on time because he contacted a disease and died very early. But uh, we all have the stirring in us. 
Alexander was only able to play out so much of it. Ashoka, through that turn, you know, you know, of events in his life, and ultimately the way storied statesman like, um, you know, new approach he took to kind of leading, uh, leaves uh, leaves us with an example of what it is that you and I and any of us can, you know, at times have the courage to do. It is that you and I and any of us can, you know, at times have the courage to do. Okay, thank you. And here is what I wanted to question you about or, or have you help uh, reconcile somewhat because transformation, that word, when we hear transformation, I am concerned that we often, there's some discomfort in it because as much as we want to say, gosh, I want to transform to be able to do something better, to be better, to, to achieve better, whatever. But there's that the word transformation is becoming something different. And to a degree, I feel like people think, well, we all at the core want to be us. Can I just be me? I, I want to. And, you know, here in America, especially or in the Western culture, the term authenticity has become such a big word. I want to be authentic. I want to be me. I don't want to transform and become something different that can almost feel even offensive or just feel like, I don't know how to do that. Okay. So to take that transformation, because what you wrote in the book is that what, what stood out to you, why you revered Ashoka was not the warlord and not even the, let's say, peace pursuer, you know, that he became, it was his, his ability to transform. Okay. What, what I am assuming though, what I've experienced in my own pursuits of transformation and other people is he didn't become a completely different person. To, to your point, you could still hear his voice. It was still the same. You could still see his eyes. The spirit inside or the energy maybe was, was similar. It was, it was him. He had the same fingerprint. He had the same DNA. And yet he put it towards, I'm going to use the word drive because that's, that's what the show's about. His drive changed. So instead of the drive going towards conquering, it went towards peace and restoration and reconciliation, but he probably still did it the same way. He probably still had the same personality style. If he was a disc, you know, he, he might've been a high D or if he was the Enneagram, he might've been the same number that didn't change. He may have still told the same jokes. He may have still gotten irritated by the same daily things. He was still him but he transformed his, what would you say? He transformed his, his focus or did he transform his spirit? How would you depict that, Hachendra? I would, I would say that he, in that moment, made a deeper connection with his soul. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example of that. So I was speaking with uh, Dr. Raj Mohan Gandhi. He is the grandson of uh, Mahatma Gandhi. And grew up, you know, in the presence of, you know, uh, the great, you know, Mahatma Gandhi and, and so has lots, lots of stories and observations and, you know, just very precious insights. I asked him, I said, how is it that, you know, Gandhi was able to achieve so much and do so much in a very messy world and one where, you know, he also had to struggle with 27 years of just like questing and, you know, really fighting for India's, you know, freedom and independence before he could actually get, you know, to steward the country to that place where the British peacefully left India and all of that. And of course, in my book, I have a chapter on uh, leading with self-realization, you know, which is a deeper dive into what we can learn from Gandhi. And, um, and, and, and Dr. Rajmohan Gandhi, he, he said, he said, his one secret I found was that he, anytime he was confronted with challenge, complexity, mistakes, issues, struggles, he would return to his soul. He would return to his soul. What a simple and profound and beautiful prescription 
for you and me and for all of us as to what should we do when we are struggling? What should we do when we are stumbling and failing? Return to your soul. Return to your soul, right? And um, so when I think about that moment with Alexander, um, yes, of course, physically, there wouldn't have been any immediate kind of radical shifts or changes in the way he was, you know, embodied, you know, his spirit in the body he had. But I do expect that um, in the course of the next several weeks and months and years, right, that he must have gone on that quest for a deeper inner attunement, um, more peaceability um, over time, you know, a capacity to handle the stressors of life, right, yeah. from a greater place of grace, um, you know, a um, non-judgmental, you know, um, broad sort of uh, net of love that he might have cast uh, across him and who in the past had been his enemies, um, for him to just open up his heart, you know, let his spirit pour through. And as more and more of the spirit is pouring through, you know, it, it probably has an impact on the poise and the energy with which people experience him on the outside. They start seeing him be a much more peaceful, more patient, more wiser kind of version of his own self. And and I, you've seen it and I've seen it, right? Sometimes there are people that we know and they've gone through a certain journey. And then when we meet them after a while, we, we, we feel there's a different kind of energy this person is exuding now than what they had before. So I I want to propose that uh, these kinds of you know moments or chapters of transformation in our life don't only lead to a recalibration of our priorities and what we're doing from the outside, but they also subtly start leading to certain changes about who we are being from the inside, rather than seeing our authentic and our true self as being the swirl of emotions that just come and go every day in life, the swirl of impulses and desires and seductions that we get caught up in every day in our life. You know, the, 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 the entanglement of thoughts that, you know, make us at times end up seeing the world in a certain biased or distorted way. You know, that's, that's a version of us. You know, that's a version of sort of, you know, these false friends that we have within that are pulling us in various directions. But, you know, at the very core of our being is our true self. And our true self is that part that is already whole, already happy, already wise, already still and comfortable in engaging from that place of just enlightenment and attunement in all the messiness of, of life, right? And it's, it's, it's like this mother of the student of mine who shared you know, with him this question when he was struggling with drug addiction, he was in the hospital, he'd just had an overdose and his mother comes in and talks to him and basically just says, you know, my son, I only have one question for you, which is in the way you've been living your life, do you think you are being true to yourself? Do you, do you think you are being true to your truest self? And he said, that was it. She just left me with that question and led me on this spiral of thoughts and realizations. And I, I realized that, you know, the path that I'd taken in life, while it was very in the moment, you know, rewarding for me and ultimately addictive for me, um, was not my true self. You know, I had a certain purity, I had a certain aspiration, I had a certain hero's journey I wanted to go on. And and he, she just pushed me, you know, out of it just through that question and over time, I, you know, you know, started to kind of move away from drugs. And here I am now, you know, it's been 15 years since I've ever come anywhere close to drugs. And I'm in the business world. I'm, you know, gaining more and more success. I'm at peace. And, you know, it's all because she invited me to go and be the truest version of myself, you know. And so, so it's a beautiful quest and journey for us to take. I celebrate this, like you said, you know, 
um, you know, passion of our times today, you know, to pursue authenticity, but it's also a responsibility. It's a responsibility for us to go on a process of inner discovery to make sure that, you know, we're, we're being true, not to just any impulse or thought or emotion or surge that comes, but to the truest part of who we are. And that you've used the word true over and over and over. And that is what draws me towards this concept of transformation is that I'm not transforming away from my own authenticity. I'm probably not being authentic now yeah. because I don't know my true self. I am trying to transform into the real me. And so here we are in this cultural perception of a desire to be authentic. And it feels like the question would be authentic to what? Authentic to these probably narrow visions that we have of ourselves, these narrow versions, these probably unhealthy, not in a bad way, but just in a, in an ignorance. I like that word ignorance. It doesn't mean stupid or dumb. You can be the most intelligent genius person in the world and be very ignorant because you haven't been exposed to much. So we're trying to expose ourselves to more to this inner journey to again, kind of that reveal to release and, and, and bring forth the real us. What's so to transform into me that's what's exciting. That feels like that's hopeful for everybody to realize, well, I guess we need to have grace that we, all we know is what we know to this point. But as you said, if we take that on as a hopeful journey and a responsibility, thanks for using that word, a responsibility to figure me out, to bring forth the true me so that I can give that gift to others. Because as to what you said a while ago, otherwise they're not getting the best. They're not even getting me. They're not only not getting the best of me, we don't even know what form of me they're getting. And yet that's the way most of us are participating in life. Yes. Yeah. So true. So true. Yeah. Well articulated. Well, thank you. So you're, I mean, in your book, I, I, I said everybody, that everybody that we would do this, you know, but you get into these key areas, these five key areas of inner mastery. And I, I want to name them off real quick. It's purpose, wisdom growth, love, and self-realization. I'm going to pull your book off again because purpose, I mean, that's a word that we use over and over and over. It's probably diluted uh, to some point as a term that I don't know that people even conceive of now. Purpose, it's just used over and over. It's, again, I think it's just, yeah, I've been so diluted. And yet at the end of the day, I don't know if there's a greater gift that we can have to find a purpose, to find our purpose. And you start off, it's chapter four, page 69, and you start off with a question being asked to you. And it was, what is the one thing you are seeking in life? And of course, I love your, your, your responses. I was stupefied. One thing, really just one, wouldn't a person with boundless ambition be going for eight or 10 things? Uh, how would I pick one? And I got so many different goals. And you were again asked, uh, don't have to give you an answer right away, but I want you to think about that. What is the one thing you are seeking in life that feels very daunting? And I would think that most people don't even know where to start to answer that question. I would ask you to speak to that. when we look at purpose for a lot of people, we hear that, we know it, we get the concept of it, but we don't know where to start. And when you ask me, what's the one thing I want to, I think most people are going to find themselves. Well, maybe the point is that, that you probably won't know. It is a journey to find that. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you, if you associate that one thing or your purpose or your goal with some of the, conventional kind of identities like 
oh, I'm meant to be a doctor and save people's right. lives, or I'm meant to pursue this particular movement and bring this about, you know, social change in the world, or I'm meant to be a mother and I'm meant to, you know, bring forth, you know, three beautiful children in the world. Mm -hmm. Well, then, then I can imagine that you will, like I was in that moment, get caught in this feeling like, it's true, I, I want those three children. I, it's true, I want to do this social movement thing. It's true, I, you know, I want to be in this profession and be a really good doctor. But, but like, I also want a good family. I also, you know, want great health. I also want to, you know, have a vacation home in the mountains. I also want this. I also want that, you know. And, and then the idea of like having one, like one thing that you want in life starts to look a little bit constrictive. Um, but that's only because we are following these outer formats of how people have pursued and defined their goals. You don't have to. You don't have to. You could, you could really be striving for a much more um, deeper attunement with um, the universe, with the divine spark in you, with a quest and a question around, you know, what is the purpose of your life? What have you been manifested here to accomplish and to do? Was there, in fact, perhaps some kind of a compact, some kind of an agreement made between you as spirit and the universe that you were going to be born in this life in order to kind of play out a certain role to perfection and engage in a certain kind of masterpiece of, you know, um, painting that you kind of going to put out there on the canvas of life, right? And, and if so, then is it possible that everything you do ultimately becomes a component of that larger kind of play. Every time you're serving and connecting with your family, every time you're pursuing a certain hobby, every time that you're, you know, taking time off, you know, in your vacation home in 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 the countryside or in, in the in the mountains. And your all of that is just part of like some one singular quest. And and what is that quest? And what is that quest for you? Right. And and that to me is the ultimate sort of mecca, right? Of getting to um really pursue purpose in life, which is that you are able to distill everything that you're doing to one core essence. And you are able to interpret how to express that essence, how to engage in that purpose in all situations, in all moments, everywhere. And I'll give you an example. For Mother Teresa, you know, we've identified it for her as being to take care of the dying and the destitute and the diseased, you know, in the streets of Calcutta and beyond. You know, today her work is in over 130 countries, missionaries of charity doing beautiful work with the dying, the destitute and the diseased. And, and sure, you know, that has been her purpose. She felt that Jesus came to her and kind of more or less kind of guided her into like, that is what she should be doing, leaving the convent where she was part of and starting this, this missionary's work. And at the same time, you know, she gets thrust into a certain moment where she's in um, a certain part of, you know, Eastern Europe, the, you know, the Iron Curtain is coming down. Communism is, you know, starting to, you know, dissipate in that country. And she sees certain Muslims there, you know, and, and they have not practiced their faith for many, many decades because of communism. And she just talks to the head of state because she has a little bit of influence with him. And she says, you know, I see these, I see these individuals really wanting to practice their faith. You should allow them to have a mosque. You should allow them to have a place of worship. Then she goes to Harvard University and she's the commencement speaker at Harvard University. And these are people with tremendous privilege, you know, that uh, they now at least have access to with the, with, with the, the brand of that, that school and the graduation that they'll be having, you know, right in front of Mother Teresa. So what message does she have for them relative to her very humble work of the dying, the destitute, the disease in these clothes of a nun, 
right? And then she tells them that, look, you know, I'm hearing from you that, you know, where is the poverty and where is the hunger here? Mother, what are you doing here? You know, your work, your work is there in Calcutta. But I do see poverty. I do see hunger. I see a deep hunger here for love. I see a deep hunger in America for love. And she said, I want you to go back to your families and I want you to identify the person who's the most hungry for love in your family and you give them love, right? And so these stories I just gave are examples of a woman who's so fused with her purpose that she sees everything through these eyes of hunger. She sees everything through these eyes of humanity just you know, dying and wanting to express like his highest ideals. And in some cases, those people are physically in such a bad place that that's the first thing they really need and that's the work she's going to do. In other cases, there are people of tremendous privilege, but she can still help them become, you know, very connected with these deeper hungers, you know, of humanity that go beyond just the physical, right? And so I just want to like encourage and, you know, kind of just like invite all of us to never kind of allow yourself to feel that there may not be a point in time in your future, if it is not right now, where you will be able to have that same kind of unifying clarity. And then every moment in your life, every role that you play, every chapter that you engage in will just be a part of that symphony, a part of that symphony, as my spiritual teacher, Yogananda, would say, that like, there's a cosmic conductor and there's a symphony going on. And when you're just playing a piece, you, you just feel like it's so it's so just one thing, but it's not one thing. You know, when you zoom out and you can see it as part of the larger orchestra, then suddenly you realize like what a beautiful piece of music was being made in a very harmonized way. That was a primary saying of my dad's who oh, just lovely. of talking about the music, you know, within you. And I want people to hear that. Well, yeah, I think your term, I really like your term of the symphony and, you know, the idea of having a masterpiece. You mentioned that you said a quest that we can all play an instrument. We can all have a, a, a music, a, a, a voice. We can all have a masterpiece, a quest. I think I'm afraid that we are a little dissuaded from that because we think today, if you're going to do that, you're going to be famous. You're going to be Mother Teresa. You're going to be right. Mozart or Michael Jordan or, you know, whoever it is, you're going to be this famous person. And yet, as you know, there are so many, call them what you want, heroes, masters, people with great masterpiece, great quests that we'll never hear about. And yeah. yet they play this beautiful note as part of the symphony. And to think that we don't have that is a tragedy. And I don't want people to hear that it has to be wrapped up in being a social media superstar with a million followers. Uh, there oh, are. It, it is like such a travesty. It is such a travesty. You know what I'm seeing um, it lead to, unfortunately and painfully, right? In addition to this kind of just rapacious hunger that we have for more and more and more, right? And the rank ordering that we do of how we stand against somebody else and then we feel inferior or superior accordingly and all, you know, in addition to all that insanity that we have to, you know, cope with, you know, with, with this, with this kind of very quantitative, very public, very outer kind of expansionist approach to what will make for a fulfilling life, a purpose-driven life, a successful life, right? The other thing I find is that for the change makers, you know, that are striving to kind of like do something beautiful in the world, what I find is that they get very impatient very early to want to, define their success on the basis of the quantitative, right? Like how many people's lives am I touching and changing? And is my technology in the hands of so many? Or is this product or service? Because I, I really want to change people's diet. Or I really want to kind of like help people become, you know, more in touch with this part of their self or this or that, whatever. Whereas actually the real work, the real work is often one-on-one. -on -one. 
you know, in the harsh light of day, to look at the person right in front of you and ask yourself, can I harmonize with this person? Can I have a beautiful relationship with this person? Can I over time inspire this person to be the best versions of themselves? Right? Can, can we navigate through lots of complexity and turbulence in our relationship and come out whole on the other side? Right? And that's really hard work. <laughs> you know, it's much easier to draw up business plans and get financing and build a technology and kind of, you know, use social media to kind of launch it in the world. And what do you get? You know, you get lots of little dabblers, you know, who'll come for, uh, you know, a moment or for a day and watch your video or, you know, read your book or whatever, but then they're gone. You know, then they're gone. Have you sustainably created any depth of transformation in even one individual, right? Even in one individual to be the change maker that you want to be, right? And so, my encouragement to to people, you know, aspiring entrepreneurs and and beyond is, yeah, just um, something that Mick Ebling, you know, um, mentioned um, in, in a conversation I had with him. I, I don't know if you know Mick, uh, Kevin. Uh, he'll be a fun guest for you to get as well. He'll be a fun guest. Mick um, runs an organization called Not Impossible Labs, and they've done some really beautiful, innovative work in uh, bringing, for example, very affordable prosthetics to people in Sudan and and even in, in Ukraine and. And, and many other innovations like that. Um, and anyway, so he, he he likes to say, like, who's your one? You know, who's that one person that you first focus on bringing transformation to, growth to, breakthroughs to, right? And and then and then perhaps you through that will gain some universal insight into your method, your approach. You know what you're meant to do and manifest, and then it can multiply from that to a few, and then a few can become you know, a few thousand and, and, and then beyond that, right? And so from that vantage point, to me, like, I mean, you and I and all of us should just be on our knees, incredibly grateful and thankful to the caregivers in the world, right? To yeah. the parents in the world, right? Um, who maybe unsung or sung, who knows, right? But they are doing life's hardest work, right? <laughs> to take and nurture a small spirit or a force or an ailing, you know, member of the family or something and just pour so much love and grace and support and service and, inspiration into them and i mean i think that's where the real work of transformation societally really begins and we should be celebrating it and in the eyes of the infinite you know think about the divine as the infinite in the eyes of the infinite just like if they were like two ants you know and they were quarreling with each other as to who's a stronger ant and who's doing yeah. more impact and work and building the anthill and you and i might just look at those ants and say but you guys are just ants like come on like you know what are you doing trying to develop a hierarchy between yourselves Maybe in the eyes of the infinite, you know, the quibbling that we do about how many followers you have or I have and who's at how much impact is just like trivial. It's just trivial because, you know, because every act is is beautiful and is a vehicle through which, you know, the infinite richness of the universe could be could be expressed, right? Hey Tendra, you you citing that that the hard work is is one on one in the past month, the testimonies that my dad received, which are, are well into the hundreds, uh, maybe 500 or more from people. And there were many that talked about his podcast and his books that had impact on him. My guess is that the vast majority, 80%, maybe even more of the testimonies that came through were from the people who had a one-on-one -on -one interaction with him. Yeah. Whether it was a lunch, whether it was at an event, whether they were a coaching client, whether it was a, a five minute phone call uh, that they were, they were privileged to have or whatnot. It was the one on one. It was very powerful to me because it's easy to sit behind a microphone and talk to lots of people. And I hope I'm providing value, you know, through this. I think I, I, I am and I, my book is and my messages, but it's the one on 
one that I can sometimes be selfish with my own time and not be as generous with that. And it really called me to that, that that's what people testified to is, and you're right, it's the hard work. It's an investment. Uh, yeah. You can even look at it as a, as a sacrifice sometimes, but that's what influenced people. Um, and it's interesting because the greatest influences I have in my life at this point is right here, mm. right now and getting yeah. to talk and to look into your eyes and to hear your voice and to have these conversations. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for doing what you're doing. Uh, everyone, I do want you to hear. I mean, again, this book is beautiful. It is, I feel like we probably tapped into uh, kind of like the sun, you know, maybe to a, a little bitty core of it. It's so rich. The book is called Inner Mastery, Outer Impact, How Your Five Core Energies Hold the Key to Success. Uh, I, tend to, I, I do want to ask you too, where else people can connect with you to get more of this? Yeah, I, I just want to say I'm, I'm really grateful and really enjoying how you're bringing the conversation back at times to a celebration of your father, his life, uh, some of his noble and beautiful work. I'm getting, I'm, I'm getting a chance to get to know him, you know, through through your eyes and and uh, remembrances. So thank you for that. Um, um, yeah, I mean, in, in terms of my work. Um, you know, besides the book, uh, there is my personal website, hitendra.com, H-I-T-E-N-D-R-A.com. And I have a newsletter that you can sign up for if you're interested. Uh, so that's one one offering. And then I have an institution called Mentora Institute, and that's just Mentora, M-E-N-T-O-R-A, mentora.institute, um, through which we are both, um, you know, providing leadership and performance uh, acceleration uh, coaching and training to organizations um, as well as are just starting down the path of now having certain offerings for individuals as well. There is a Mentor Life community that if you're drawn to, you can sign up for and be part of a membership-based community to um, bring people together, inspire and grow and develop each other. And a retreat that I will be launching, you know, starting this year as well. Okay. Well, thank you. And folks, if you, uh, I know you got value from this, let us know. Uh, you can, of course, leave a rating on Spotify, but leave a rating. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts and mention this. Mention what you got out of it. I'll take a screenshot and share it with uh, with Itendra. It will be a gift. We often hear about the show, but not always the specific episodes. Tell us what you learned from this specific one. You can watch this episode that we just did and watch our interactions and see our eyes along with hearing our voices uh, at YouTube or on any of the social media channels we have. We'll have lots of clips out there as well. And you can find me at kevinmiller.co. And of course, the point of this talking about inner mastery is how it influences your drive. That's what my book is about, what drives you. That's what this show is about. So until next time, stay driven. Yeah.